my name's Gus. I'm the college pastor here at Commonway. It's good to be with you guys. I always enjoy spending time up here uh, just being with you all. Uh, what comes to mind when I say the word holy, the phrase holy? What images come to your head? Is it Jesus, you know, floating on a cloud with a harp and angels and the pearly gates? Is it, you know, pastel colored clothes with like a stiff collar for Easter? Or maybe you hear holiness and you just think good behavior. That's what holiness is, is to be on your best behavior. I know I can think of something being holy as like so sacred and otherworldly that it's like untouchable and very serious and scary. You know, in, in our world, there are, uh, you know, lots of religions that have holy sites that are vastly important to them. And people may travel, you know, from across the globe just to go visit these places because they're, you know, so, so holy, be it a, you know, um, a temple or a monument of some kind or like a, a, natural, a natural landmark. And we don't have a ton of iconic holy sites in this country, but when I think of a place that has been labeled holy and feels like kind of that way, I think of something like maybe a, a beautiful cathedral. This is St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. Maybe if you, some of you have visited, visited it or something like it. I get the sense it was not formerly a J.C. Penney. Uh, no, offense, no offense to churches that are that way. Um, but if you've ever visited, you know, a grand cathedral like this in a big city, you kind of know that sensation of seeing this, this building that almost looks out of place and kind of otherworldly amongst all the corporate towers and the hustle and bustle, and then boom, there it is. And when you walk inside, it's kind of like you're being transported. It feels like you're in a different world all of a sudden. You're in this place that feels sacred. You start to kind of feel small in the presence of something so big and beautiful and grand. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a space where if you've ever walked into one, a, a cathedral like this, it gets very quiet and you kind of feel a hush come over you because you don't want to disturb what's, what's sacred. It would almost be wrong. You can kind of sense the echoes of all the prayers that have been whispered throughout the years. And a real holy place like this can kind of feel like there's a bridge between heaven and earth that has been shortened that it's getting shorter and shorter. Has anyone, have you ever, have you ever had that feeling, felt that, where God's presence is just palpable, feels like that bridge between heaven and earth is getting shorter and shorter? Well, in the Bible, when we see the word holy, it literally means for something to be set apart. That, that's what it means, set apart. For it to be special, special, special at the, at the tippy, tippy top of that category. Different from absolutely everything else, set apart from the crowd. So when the Bible uses the word holy, it's letting us know that something is special and important and that it is kept away from the rest of the field. That everything else, all the other classes and categories and, and ecosystems that may be fine, they, they may all be you know fine and dandy, but separate from them, all in a class of their own, are things that are holy. Things that were called holy in the Bible uh, were protected and preserved with the utmost effort. If something was holy, if it was labeled that uh, by God, God's people would do anything they could to keep that thing from being spoiled or contaminated by this world. 
because when something is that special, you want to keep it pure and clean and safe from kind of the tears and spills of life. Did anyone have like a, a, room, a living room in their house growing up that was treated this way? It was like the holy living room. I, don't, I did. A room where like your parents threatened to kill you if it was stained with the filth of children or whatever. We had a room like this. We had a room that had a white couch. It was where like our piano was and a white couch. And you like, you couldn't even look in that room if you were holding juice. It was like, don't even think about it. And kind of the rest of your house could look like a bomb had gone off. But that room was ready for the Pope to visit, just in case he was coming. That's what something holy is like. That times infinity is like holy, just separate, a totally different thing. This morning, we're going to be talking about something that God made and called holy. And in the Bible, we see lots of places and things uh, and activities called holy, which means we should pay attention to those things. But today, in particular, we're talking about an extra special thing in that category uh, because it is the very first thing in the Bible that gets called holy, which is that is a big deal. That should be like a neon sign, flashing lights, pay attention to this. Of all the things that get, callly or, uh, get called holy or, uh, or supposed to be holy or things we're supposed to do to try to imitate holiness, what do you think is the thing in the Bible that gets first dibs on that important title? Maybe you already know. I did not know before preparing for this sermon. What is our first holy site, our original cathedral? What is the first thing God sets apart as ground zero for holiness? Well, let's look at the answer together at the very beginning of Genesis 2. This is just after God has, has made the heavens and the earth and the waters and the land and the plants and the animals and humans. He's finished making everything, after which he has called everything good, and, and even more so, he's called everything very good, but nothing has gotten the title of holy yet, even when he created humans. Nothing, that title had still been reserved. There's all of creation, but nothing got that super special status until day seven. Let's read in Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And there we have it. The first thing God made holy, not some mountain, not some tree or river, not a, a temple, but a day of rest set apart. The very first thing we see called holy by God is the Sabbath. A day designated just to take it easy and to rest. Uh, Abraham, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who's a Jewish mystic, has just a great, great quote. It's a little bit long, but he summarizes it so well. One of the most distinguished words in the Bible is the word kadash, holy. A word which, mean, which more than any other word is representative of the mystery and majesty of the divine. Now, what was the first holy object in the history of the world? Was it a mountain? Was it an altar? It is indeed a unique occasion at which the distinguished word kadash is used for the first time. In the book of Genesis, at the end of the story of creation, how extremely significant is the fact that it is applied to time. And God blessed the seventh day 
and made it holy. There is no reference in the record of creation to any object in space that would be endowed with the quality of holiness. This is a radical departure from accustomed religious thinking. The mythical mind would expect that after heaven and earth had been established, God would create a holy place, a holy mountain, or a holy spring, whereupon a sanctuary is to be established. Yet it seems as if to the Bible, it is holiness in time, the Sabbath which comes first. When history began, there was only one holiness in the world, holiness in time, a shrine that neither the Romans nor the Germans would be able to burn. The Sabbath is our great cathedral. I mean, that is a cool line right there. I mean, what a great image that our greatest cathedrals are our days of rest. That if you truly wanted to go visit some holy architecture, something built as a bridge between heaven and earth, you would want to go find one of Jesus' people on the Sabbath, and you'll find something holy. Now, I know for some of us, this idea of observing the Sabbath might be a little bit foreign, or it might even sound a little bit stuffy. Maybe you came from a background where remember, remembering the Sabbath meant that on Sundays you weren't allowed to do anything fun or convenient. Uh, but there is so much more to it than that. Sabbath is something that we desperately need, and it's baked into God's created rhythms, even for himself, to take a day of rest. This morning, we're going to be talking about why is the Sabbath good, what is the Sabbath, and how can we start to practice it. First up, why is the Sabbath good? Why is it so good for us? Of all the things that God cooked up, why is this day of rest so important? Well, to answer that, we'll be looking at probably the most recognizable mention of the Sabbath in the Bible, which comes in the Ten Commandments. Uh, now, the Ten Commandments are actually found twice in the Bible, once in Exodus, when Moses receives them from God on Mount Sinai, and then again in Deuteronomy, where at the end of Moses's journey, he kind of restates them. Uh, in fact, Deuteronomy means repeated laws. That's what Deuteronomy means. Now, at first, the two passages seem almost identical, and they are very, very similar. We just read, I'm not going to read all through these for the sake of time because they're long, but we read, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, and then some instructions. Six, six days of labor, do not do any work, neither you nor your sons nor your daughters. That's the Exodus passage. And then in Deuteronomy, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor, and on and on and on. This one mentions donkeys and oxes, which is fun. But they basically kind of say the same thing. They, they have some instructions. But where they start to look different is at the end of each passage. After giving the instructions on what a Sabbath might look like, we read in Exodus, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So Exodus tags the commandment about Sabbath with a reminder of God's original creation, where he set aside the Sabbath as a holy day. It harkens back to Genesis. Now, in Deuteronomy, we read, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Remember, that you were slaves in Egypt, 
and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord our God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy, the commandment about Sabbath is tagged with a reminder that God's, peoples, God's people were once slaves in Egypt, but they've been set free. These are two very different endings and both very significant uh, and uh, with a, a significant reminder of why the Sabbath is so good for us. We're going to spend time on each of these, uh, starting with the passage in Exodus, where we see the Sabbath intertwined with a reminder uh, that God created everything uh, and made a day of holy rest. God knows that this reminder is exactly what we need to do Sabbath well, because, I don't know if you've noticed this, it's subtle, but we as humans have this bad habit of trying to be God. From the very beginning, uh, we have been tempted to you know, usurp a throne that doesn't belong to us. From day one, Adam and Eve were tempted by the idea that if they disobeyed, they could be like God. And, and just a few chapters later, we see Nimrod building a flood-proof tower of Babel, trying to break into heaven. Or the Israelites again and again trying to show God that they really know what's best and they should be in charge of the show. Or, you know, Jonah thinking he should be the ones in charge of how the story goes. And again and again and again in the Bible, we see human beings trying to take on the role of God. Even in the stories we tell ourselves, um, you know, outside of, uh, of the Bible, uh, we reveal this deep-seated problem that we are a little too high on ourselves sometimes. Think of, you know, Icarus and his wax wings flying too close to the sun. Dr. Frankenstein wants to play God and create life only for his great work to become a monster. There's that, that famous poem, Invictus, kind of the anthem of inv individual strength. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Or our nation's own Walt Whitman in his subtly titled Song of Myself, which I don't know if you had to read it, read it in college. It's a 1,300-line poem uh, where he says a lot of things like, The past and present wilt. I have filled them, emptied them, and proceed to fill my next fold of the future. Do I contradict myself very well then? I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. All right, Walt, settle down. Right. You might remember from history class, you know, the settlers, we had this urge to, to conquer and claim and dominate, which was not advertised as problematic or greedy or, or anything like that. It was advertised as manifest destiny. This is our divine right. Um, something tells me maybe we have a little bit of a problem here. Something tells me maybe we are all afflicted with a human condition called pride. And, and I'm not using these examples to like pick on anybody or you know put down people in history because I don't think they're especially arrogant. In fact, I imagine we have a lot of this in our own lives. How many of you maybe have a coworker or someone you work with who just thinks they are the main character of every room they walk in? Or do you have a family member who thinks they always know best and everybody else is a dummy? Or maybe if we're honest, you actually live in the skin of someone who sometimes thinks 
The entire world revolves around them. I know I do that from time to time. It's easy for us to shake our heads at, you know, celebrities or characters in the Bible or in literature who have gotten too big for their britches, but let's not kid ourselves. We are often not too different from those examples. They're, you know, they, we all share, they're just symptoms of the same disease that we all share. If we really look at ourselves, there is probably some area in our life right now where we are trying to switch roles with God. You know, if we kind of ask ourselves, who has first dibs on our finances? Me or God? Who do I give credit for, for all the things that I have to be thankful for in life? Me or God? Who do I think is responsible for my righteousness? Who is it that gets the first word on my sexuality or my identity? And of course, last but not least, who does my time belong to? Who is it that sits on the throne in the kingdom of my schedule? Me or God? Let's not deceive ourselves. Let's not, you know, let's not deceive ourselves. Left to our own devices, we're all Icarus. We're all Adam and Eve. And given the chance, we might try to take God's place and be in charge. And that is why we so desperately need Sabbath. It's a sacred rhythm where we take a day to practice turning off our arrogance, our hustle, our ambition, because left unchecked, those things will start to consume us and start to take over and leave us totally burned out. God is trying to get us to take a rest and remember we are not God before we crash and burn. I know for me, as silly as it sounds, it can be hard for me to believe that the world doesn't come to a screeching halt when I take some time to rest. Even in my role as a, as a campus pastor, I know that I can kind of fall into that trap. And I ha absolutely have to practice Sabbath. Or even in ministry, I can start to see myself as the center of the show, which you can imagine is kind of problematic. But, you know, I start to get in this space where I have this day set aside to rest, but somebody texts me and says, hey, can you get coffee? or there's a meeting here at the church, or somebody has to move something, and the only day they can do it is, my, is on my Sabbath, and I start to go, well, I mean, I got to show up. I got to be there. I got to do it, you know, and so I neglect my Sabbath as if God is only at work or shows up in people's life when I'm there. Sabbath makes me take a step back and realize God is the one showing up in people's life, not Gus. You know what I mean? The world does not fall apart if I take a break because it was never my world to begin with. Now, maybe in your own life, you have a hard time resting because you have accidentally tried to reclaim the helm of your world. And Sabbath is not just me resting, it's me remembering I am not the superhero that's going to fix everything and trusting that God is the one sustaining my life and healing my world. John Mark Comer puts it this way, that's why Sabbath is an expression of faith. Faith that there is a creator and he is good. We are his creation. This is his world. We live under his roof, drink his water, eat his food, breathe his oxygen. So on the Sabbath, we don't just take a day off from work. We take a day off from toil. We give him all our fear and anxiety and stress and worry. We let go. We stop ruling and subduing, and we just be. We remember our place in the universe so that we never forget there is a God, and I am not him. 
God's commandment in Exodus comes with the reminder that Sabbath is good for us because it is a day to take a rest from trying to be God and trying to do everything and declare with our time and trying to do everything and it's a chance to declare with our time that we trust God. Now, in in Deuteronomy, we are given a different reminder uh, that teaches another reason that Sabbath is good for us. If you'll remember, we read, observe the Sabbath day, by keeping it holy, remember that you were slaves in Egypt, that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Where the Exodus commandment was an invitation to take a break from seeing ourselves as all-important, the Deuteronomy commandment is kind of an invitation to go like put on your punk rock outfit and say to the world, enough is enough. I am not a slave doomed to toil. I am free, and because of that, I can rest. You know, we're not going to take it. No. That's what Sabbath is like. I'm not musical, traditionally. You know. Again, Comer puts it this way when talking about Egypt. Egypt, like every empire since, was an economic system built on the back of the oppressed. To get to the lavish, opulent luxury of a pharaoh, you need cheap labor. You need slaves grinding their bodies into the ground until there's nothing nothing left but ash and dust. And Egypt, my friends, is alive and well. We live in the thick of it. We live in a culture obsessed with more. Pharaoh would love the USA. Now, I don't point to any of this to be anti-work, or uh, you know, anti-American or anything like that. Work is a good thing. Hand in hand with rest is work. Uh, it's part of God's original plan. Can you go back a slide? Sorry about that. Work is part of God's original plan. And I am super grateful to live in this country. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in this world. Um, but some things have clearly gotten out of whack. Uh, every teacher that I listened to over the past couple weeks, be it, you know, um, Keller or Comer or listened to some of Matt's old sermons and read a bunch of different books, Heschel, who I quoted earlier, they all are like screaming through a megaphone, our culture is overly obsessed with work. We have an unhealthy obsession with work. Uh, Just to quickly share some stats that I read over the past couple of weeks, uh, from 1973 to 1990, the average work week went up from 41 hours to 47 hours, so added, everybody gained a six-hour shift, while time spent on rest went down 37%. Uh, since 1950, the per capita income of Americans has tripled, and the average house size has gone up by 1,000 square feet, but ironically, the average family size has been cut in half. Um, I also read, and I think Matt has mentioned this before, I read about this... Um, this political subcommittee that was formed in 1967 under the Nixon administration, who were charged with studying um, what the implications were going to be of all this new technology that was being developed in the 60s, all this supposedly effort-saving and time-saving technology. What's this going to do to the workforce in the future? And their big prediction was that with all this technology, by 1985, the average American would work 22 hours a week 27 weeks a year. And the big issue would be that people would have too much free time on their hands, which is kind of hilarious to read now. I don't live that life. I don't know if you do. 
And all of this is without even scratching the surface of technology and social media, which quite literally provide an endless feed of, you should do more, you could have more, 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 more. And I, you know, I think it's self-evident that we live in a culture that is obsessed with more. Even when we get more, it's never, ever, ever enough. I quote this like every single sermon that I preach, so bear with me. What did Rockefeller say when somebody asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? Just a little bit more. But then God comes in and gives us what Comer calls the anti-Pharaoh, the Sabbath. Sabbath is a form of resistance to the furnace of our culture. Even though we are constantly being told that what we have, who we are, what we do is never enough, followers of Jesus can stand up to that lie by planting our flag on the Sabbath and saying that we have plenty. Just like in Exodus, this remembrance of the past asks us to trust the Sabbath and really to trust that it is God who restores my soul and brings me joy. It is not more accomplishment or possessions or anything like that. The commandments to honor the Sabbath come with a reminder that if we don't stop to trust God with our time as we rest, we may either end up trying to play God ourselves or our culture may swoop in and fill the role for us. Sabbath is a holy antidote to both of those problems, and it is very, very good for us. Let's move on to what actually is Sabbath. You know, in the, in the like, passage in Deuteronomy, they talk about, like, let your ox take a break. I don't know what that means for me. So what does it actually mean to truly have a Sabbath? Well, most obviously, Sabbath is a day of rest. We're not going to spend long here because it's the most evident and kind of baked into everything we're saying. But Sabbath is not a day for errands. It is not a day for accomplishments or ambitions or work or to-do lists. I am not saying at all that those are bad things. They're definitely not. Those are good things, in fact. They're just not a good thing for Sabbath. Instead, Sabbath is a day for taking a nap, turning off your phone, going on a walk, read that book you've been meaning to get to, have some friends over for a meal. And if one of those things doesn't feel like rest to you, don't do it because it's not rest. Sabbath is a day of rest. Uh, Secondly, Sabbath is not just some unsatisfying day off. Sabbath is a day of delight. I imagine we've, we've all had those days where, you know, you get a day off and you don't have to go into the office, but the day is just kind of uh, as hectic and as draining as a day on the job, uh, and it just kind of turns into an unpaid work day where you go run errands and do stuff around the house and pay bills and, and whatnot, and yeah, you had a day off work, but it's not exactly a day of rest. Anybody had a day like that? I find that all the time. Uh, similarly, maybe you'll uh, have a day of truly doing nothing, which rarely brings about actual refreshment to our souls. I know I have had days where like, oh, I, I didn't really mean to sleep in. I just kind of like slept in forever and ever. Uh, and, you know, I spend my day kind of aimlessly disconnected from reality, either know, scrolling on my phone or watching TV or playing video games or something like that. This usually also involves me eating food that makes me feel great for like 15 minutes and then real bad for like five hours. 
And of course, by the end of the day, we all know this feeling, I don't feel restored at all. In fact, most of the time, I don't feel like I actually got a day of rest. I kind of just digitally distracted myself uh, until the day was over, but never actually filled myself up. Anybody else with either of those days experienced that, kind of a pseudo-Sabbath? Eugene Peterson calls these kinds of days bastard Sabbaths because they kind of, sorry, Jeremy, uh, because they kind of feel Sabbathy. They feel Sabbathy, or on paper, they kind of look like rest, but in reality, they're just a terrible imitation of the real thing. Just avoiding work doesn't make a Sabbath. That's not all it is. Instead of just a day off, Sabbath is meant to be a day of delight. Tim Keller says it this way, because the world is full of ugly things, we need the Sabbath to feed our souls with beauty and delight. Uh, let me explain. The, the best illustration I could come up with this, of how this should sort of feel, um, is like that feeling you have when you're a kid and Christmas morning shows up. Or that feeling you have uh, when you find out it's a snow day when you're a kid. Oh, remember that? Oh, you go to bed and you know there's a storm brewing outside. And at least in my day, you get a call for the two-hour delay. And you were like, come on, baby. Come on, let's go for the full thing. And then, bam, you get the phone call. Snow day. Best feeling in the world. You can't wait to have a day where there's nothing to do but delight in the day. There's nothing to do but have an adventure of delighting in, in the day that's suddenly unfolded in front of you. You can't wait to get outside and live it up or, or you know, wake up and celebrate with loved ones or read a good book. That's the kind of day of delight we're talking about. Not just a day away from work and not a day of kind of slack-jawed sluggishness. Now, if that same kid I was on a snow day back in the day found out that as an adult I was squandering my holy, God-mandated snow days that have been carved into creation, if I was squandering that on running errands and scrolling on my phone, he would be very, very disappointed. It's a day of delightful doing, uh, things that connect us to God and his original plan for the world. Uh, Heschel, who I quoted earlier, writes that Sabbath is meant to paraphrase heaven which is a nice little idea, just that beautiful way of putting it, that imagining that Sabbath is a day that maybe one day we'll get to heaven and go, oh, you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of those Sabbaths that we used to take, or it's a day that reminds us of the garden. That is our first mark of what Sabbath is, a day of, uh, of delight. Sabbath is also, uh, it's not a day of legalism, it is a gift. On the other end of the spectrum from like a, 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 day, a day off, you can have a Sabbath that is completely run and ruined by legalism and just turn to a list of things you, you can't do or you're breaking some rules. Some of you may have grown up in a home uh, that had or had family members that you know wouldn't go to the store on Sunday or buy gas on Sunday or watch TV on Sunday or crack a smile on Sunday or be friendly on Sunday or ever, all in the name of Sabbath. And this is a tremendous exercise in missing the point. Yes, there are things we probably should avoid on Sabbath, sure. But in no way is the point of Sabbath for God to like test our impulse control or have a day where like we sit down and go over the rules together. 
In other words, Sabbath is not a test. It's a gift. Um, Jesus actually helps us out a lot here um, because he understood the nuance of Sabbath better than anybody. He lived in a time where kind of Sabbath legalism was really at its height. Um, The Pharisees had made all these extra rules around Sabbath, kind of built all these extra layers around don't work on the Sabbath. You know, they would like, you can only carry this much weight. You can only walk this far. You're not allowed to make bread. You're not allowed to get water. All this different stuff. And they would try to catch Jesus breaking the rules on Sabbath. And to their credit, Jesus did seem, he often seemed to break the rules on purpose on the Sabbath in front of them. And by breaking the rules, I mean he would heal someone. Or he and his disciples would be walking by a field and they would eat some grain out of the field. They'd snack on some grain. And the Pharisees would always, you know, try to, like, catch him, like, in a trap. And his, his retort back to them was always, like, you guys just don't get it. Like, you have completely missed the point. He has the line, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it, Sabbath was made to serve us. We weren't made to serve the Sabbath. And what Jesus is getting at here is that, yeah, there is a ton of gray area when it comes to the Sabbath. But the point isn't lines in the sand. The point is whether or not you will be able to delight in the gift God has given us. Or will you turn it into one more human you know, measuring stick? In other words, God is doing this for us. This is for our sake. It's not a test or an evaluation. It's a gift. Uh, now, that doesn't mean just go do whatever you want because there are no rules. There is definitely some wisdom and making the most of a Sabbath gift. For example, like, you know, not that long ago, a lot of stores were, like, closed on Sunday. I, I, I can remember that. Um, so, you know, is it wrong for me to go pick up groceries on my Sabbath? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I kind of think that's an example of just a wrong understanding, wrong question. Um, to use my illustration from earlier, I mean, you know, I think a good version of Sabbath is, like, to think of, like, a Christmas day you know, is it wrong to go to the store on Christmas? I mean, you're not like in trouble. Like, you don't burst into flames if you go into and if you go into a grocery store on Christmas. But I think we can all agree if you're running to Walmart on Christmas morning, something has gone wrong, right? <laughs> so this is not what you planned for the day. You're not in trouble, but yes, something has fallen apart. The same goes for, you know, aimlessly scrolling on your phone or whatever it may be. It's not that you'd be failing your, sa- your Sabbath or anything like that. You're not in trouble. We just know it's definitely not making the most of a gift. If it's not delightful, it might not be bad. It's just for another day. Sabbath is not an art. Uh, Sabbath is an art, not a science. It is a gift, not a test. So we should enjoy the gift. Uh, Last but not least, Sabbath is an act of worship. I'm not going to linger here because of time and just because everything we've been talking about hopefully speaks to the worshipful nature of Sabbath. We are not resting because of how great we are. We are not like delighting in the radiance of our own glory, like basking in how great we are on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is not like a little treat that we've earned and we get to give to ourselves. We get to rest because of how great God is. We delight in, God, in the glory of God's creation and what he has given us to enjoy. 
And Sabbath is not something we've earned. It is a sacred gift from God built into the rhythms of our life. This is not to say that um, we spend the whole day like singing Hillsong necessarily, but it does mean that Sabbath is a day where we remember who is the master of our fate and who is the captain of our soul. The theme of the day, whether you're mountain biking, baking cookies, having a dinner party, or going on a walk, is that God gave me a holy place to rest. And it's not some, you know, faraway mountain I have to traverse to. It's a time that the clock of my soul is set to. And once upon a time, I was a slave, and I was never going to have enough, but God stretched out his arms to me, and now I am free, and I have plenty. A day of Sabbath is a day of rest, a day of delight, a day of worship, and a gift. Uh, I want to end today with some practically very, hopefully with some very practical tips on starting to practice the Sabbath. And let me just say, I am not an expert. Um, I'm still growing in this. This is not like advice from Gus time. I'll go through seasons where I'm really diligent with my Sabbath, and it's like the most meaningful spiritual practice in my life. And then there are seasons where I kind of fall out it, and I find myself compromising all the time. So this is good for all of us. Um, The most obvious thing to do, and kind of a good first step, is to pick a time. Like actually go into your calendar, find a 24-hour window, and clear it out for a day of Sabbath. Don't like wait around for this to happen. You are not going to trip and fall one day and practice Sabbath. You got to like carve out space. Definitely do not get hung up on like what day it is on. It it doesn't need to be a Sunday. I don't know if you know this, but like I am at work right now. This is not my Sabbath day. This is work for me. Hello, everyone. so it doesn't need to be, you know, that's not, don't get caught up on that. Some, some traditions are like uh, Friday night to Saturday afternoon, which has some niceness to it because you start your Sabbath by falling asleep, which is a powerful symbol, really. Um, if you work on the weekends, you might have to do a weekday. That is totally okay. Um, just don't get caught up on that. The point is not what day you choose. The point is that you choose a day. Uh, And you have to do that. You're just not going to accidentally find Sabbath. I highly recommend, this should be a family thing. If you've got a family that's all in the house together, bring everybody in on it. Uh, Don't make it like, oh, I'm doing it this day, you're doing it this day. Make it a thing that the whole family looks forward to. Whoever you do life with, get together and say, hey, let's all agree this day is going to be our day of Sabbath. Um, Be okay with trial and error. You might try it the first time and go, that was weird. Or, yeah, Sunday didn't really work. I forgot I actually have stuff I like have to do on Sunday. That's okay. Be gentle with yourself. Try a different day. It's all right. We, we got time. Uh, don't be surprised if Sabbath takes a little bit of preparation. Like, um, I know for myself, the day before Sabbath, I find myself like, ooh, I got to do some laundry. I'm going to go to the grocery store tonight. i got to get all this stuff situated. I'm going to finish all this stuff so tomorrow I'm not thinking about it. I actually think this helps build the anticipation. It kind of makes it fun. Like Steph and I, like getting everything ready around the house. Like, oh, let's get this laundry done, do this, fold this, do the dishes, get everything set. Let's get some food ready to warm up, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then, oh, when you wake up in the morning, oh, it's just wide open. It feels great. So prepare. It's kind of part of the fun, I think. Without creating a to-do list, 
um, choose a, find some practices that fit the requirements of rest, worship, and delight. Like I said, don't make it a to-do list, but at the same time, think of some things that fit those, those, those three elements. Go on a walk, take a nap, read a book, call a friend, journal, exercise, pray, sing, have a game night, you know, go on a drive, practice, practice thankfulness. It's our God-given snow day. Act accordingly. Um, find a spiritual practice that is delightful. You know, there's a time and a place for doing like a spiritual practice that really stretches you and, and really pushes, you know, there's a time to like go study Job. You might not do that on your Sabbath, though. I mean, you may, but like return to the passages that you know fill you up. Return to the prayers that you know connect you with God. Do those spiritual practices that bring you delight and you know, um, you know are meaningful to you. This is um, a great time to shout out the Lent Guide that Jeremy mentioned earlier. Um, Lisa and Christy have put together just an awesome, awesome Lent Guide with a lot of suggestions, not just, just for you, but for you know, the whole family. Um, check that out to go find something. Uh, at the very least, this week, you might practice our breath prayer that, that's in each week of Lent and in the guide where we breathe in and say, because I trust in you, and then breathe out, I will make room to rest. Um, the last two things, two little warnings. This part is kind of Gus' advice, so take it with a grain of salt. Just two warnings, two things to maybe look out for. Um, beware of the screens, you know? I mean, there's like whole libraries of information now telling us that our screens are not great for us. I highly recommend just turning off your phone for at least a part of the day. I can't imagine a world for myself where I'm like, ooh, Sabbath, delight, rest, worship, snow day time with God. Here I go. Where's my phone? Like, that just doesn't compute. I just don't think it's going to be a part of the picture. So I just, just a word of caution. Beware of the screens, particularly on Sabbath. They can suck us in. You know, we've all seen it happen. Um, so don't be afraid to turn off your phone. And then beware of Sabbath-ish. And what I mean by that is going... Oh, yeah, and I do, I've done this many a times, and it doesn't feel good. Where you go, oh, tomorrow's going to be my Sabbath. I do think I'm going to take like an hour to answer some emails. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take like an hour to answer some texts. You're not in trouble, but I bet you will find your rest was diminished significantly by not truly clearing out that space. So just be aware of that, of kind of compromising on yourself. Does that make sense? Does this sound good? we do this? If you would, let's stand together. I'll close us with a little bit of prayer. Uh, and then when I, when I finish praying, just as a reminder, um, we've, been, we've been starting this recently or going back to it. If you've got something that you would like someone to be praying for you, um, we've got our prayer stations on either side up front here. Um, there will be folks up here after service who are willing to pray with you. So don't hesitate to find somebody to go pray with after service. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to be architects of some truly wondrous cathedrals. May our Sabbaths be a holy place where you become more and more and we become less. Please forgive us for all the times that we've been greedy with our time and we've been too snobby for a gift. Help us to trust 
And thank you um, for the gift of a day of rest and of delight. We love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.